This is an AMI podcast. I'm Kelly McDonald. I'm Ramia Amadin, and this is Kelly and Ramia. Live from the Accessible Media Studios, this is Kelly and Ramya. Entertainment, lifestyle, and great conversation. It's AMI's on-air community, and everyone's invited. We're coming back. Those people who are listening to two AMI-audio to AMI-TV, off of Kelly and Ramya at least... But we are back. I'm Ramia Amadin. Kelly McDonald is here. And by here, we mean in person, in studio, in Toronto, together. Hello. Hey, Ram. Hi. How's it going? Well, it's pretty good. I mean, we've had a whirlwind of busy, of active. Um, we've all been kind of doing a lot. Yep. And it's been really powerful. Uh, we've had Grant and Beth with us. We've had our whole team. We saw Matt Agnew yesterday. Oh, gosh, so yeah. quite frankly, it's that, wow, today's like, oh. And it I, feels like the actual start of the week because yesterday was yeah. so different. Well, it was like a day of its own. Yep, exactly. And not day. at all the way the we would usually have a Monday. You know, it's interesting. So we had our, of course, our K&R primetime special taping yesterday. It is to air on AMI-tv sometime in the near future. December we will 29th. Keep is it December 29th? Is yeah. that confirmed? Okay. There, you heard it here first. On December 29th, you will get to see the uh, primetime special of Kelly and Ramia on AMI-tv. We'll give you more details as it comes. But yesterday, as we taped... Yeah, it was a completely different day. And Kels, what was one of the highlights for you? Feeling that the audience that came, which was a large audience, mm. uh, I think in total, finally 70 people in total uh, were able to be there. It was the feel. They were there. They were patient as we shot. They knew the show. And that was incredibly you know, flattering. I mean, I could go on about so many other things, such as the band and the band, well, I don't want to ruin that surprise, but some right. of the tricks they played. But I think having that crowd there, having them so attentive to us was beautiful. It was super fun. And speaking of the crowd, one of my favorite moments as we taped was showing people some of the behind the scenes and uh, fun material that we've gathered from recent shows, bloopers and just funny moments, and having people laugh along and engaging because you can tell that this is a family, right? Like this is a um, a familiar group of people to us. We may not know everybody by name or have met everybody in person, but through the show, we're all kind of bonding and that chemistry, that knowing of the hosts, the team, the content and the vibe uh, was so present, and to me, that moment was marked by when we were showing people behind the scenes. Because it's you only appreciate that when you can really appreciate and love a show. The other part that was so wonderful with all that was the fact that the, the people knew us. They accepted everybody who is associated with the show. Yeah. And you really felt that yesterday with their enjoyment. And they felt we were approachable, which is, again, so flattering, but just so true. Yeah, absolutely. And so we're excited because we we know it went well. We just finished. And uh, when you guys see it on AMI-tv on the 29th of December, then we will all be able to get on the same page. See, that was awesome. Let's find out what's coming up on today's show, though, because as we kick off the week here with you live, um, this is the Tuesday edition of Kelly and Rumia. We're talking gut health. Why is it important? What exactly is it? And how do we improve our situations with gut health? Wellness segment with Francis Wong. We'll learn more. Uh, on our woodworking segment with Jeff Thompson today, we talk about miter saws and a data plus. Um, plus, oh, sorry, that's you. 
<laughs> Plus, we're reviewing Women Talking. This is our book of the month for our monthly book club. I recommended it. Kelly read it, so we're going to talk about it later. Miriam Toos is a, Toos is a uh, Canadian author, and this is actually her seventh novel that she wrote. So looking forward to talking more about that. Um, other things going on in the world of entertainment, Kels, as we kind of isolated for Kelly and Rumia's stuff. Big, big things. Ringo Starr has released his latest project for fans of music and fashion. Beats and Threads is an illustrated journey through the former Beatles drummer uh, about his career, featuring images of everything from his drum beats to his trend-setting wardrobe. The 312-page book, for an illustrated book, that seems pretty long, mm -hmm. is being sold through the publishing, um, this division of joyous um, uh, auctions, and all proceeds will be donated to the Lotus Foundation, which offers um, support for various foundations projects like substance abuse issues and homelessness. Here is a clip uh, of Ringo Starr featuring Octopus's Garden. I like to be under the sea in an octopus's garden in the shade. the storm in our little hideaway beneath the waves resting our head on no. the seabed in an octopus's garden near a cave i uh, am curious your thoughts on whether this thing is going to sell because it's ringo star or whether it's going to sell because the actual contents seem interesting and intriguing enough i mean it's a long enough book but is it really just selling because people who remain of the beatles are wanting to continue the legacy the i don't know ongoing of making some monetary uh, business out of it um it'll sell it's different it's Beatles, of course, so yeah. you've got that. you got the new Beatles release that's uh, out right now that is really doing well. Uh, Ringo Starr has got such a world of fans out there from people who, you know, loved loved him with his kids show all the way through what he's done. He's always been that Beatle people have felt kind of, he's unique, he's different. He came in after Pete Besla and... You know what? They loved him, right? right? As things went on. And he's kept his celebrity. Also, Rum, I think you're looking at the clothing, the drums, everything that he brings to the table from yeah. the 60s to now. This guy's still performing. This guy's still dressing great. This guy still celebrates birthdays, mm. and everybody knows it. He has a lot of fun. There's so many illustrations and pictures to show, you know, captifying, what, yes. 50 years, more than 50 years. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And you're right about the decades, right? Mm. The, you know, when they were big and how big they continue to be past that decade and how, you know, what that kind of material will sit like now. Um, I'm just so intrigued that this is an illustrated book. And because they've, you know, from the teases, it's got to do with his fashion and his actual trend-setting ways that are very visually captivating. Yes. And how much of that is going to be what we hear about from this book. Well, and snapshots in a moment, right? Yes. Of every yeah. time, whether it's July 1975, whatever it is, mm -hmm. you'll feel that. Yeah, absolutely. Interesting stuff. All right, we'll keep posted. And after the break, we're going to talk to Dr. Danielle Johnkind, our veterinarian. She's going to bring up antibiotic resistance uh, bacteria and how that impacts vet medicine. Learn more about that on Kelly and Ramya. Don't miss a minute. Kelly and Ramya will be right back.
You know what I realized? Hmm? I have no idea where my phone is. What? Yeah, I don't know where it is. I don't know if it's with me or somewhere scattered on this table. Okay, hold it. But Somebody you're sure it's, it's in my not, pocket. You're sure it's not lost, right? No. Okay. Oh, it is in my pocket. So you don't have that stress. Megan, how did you know that? Well, she can see, you know. <laughs> no. Not right now. It, it's hidden away in my pocket. But she can do, see. Do you know? <laughs> she talked to my mic so she remembers. I didn't know. So seriously, for the last 15 minutes, and you know how it is, because we're addicted to just touching our well, devices. Well, just know you get distracted, because you know, I haven't lost that. You know. Think. It can't where, be far away, but where yeah, is it? Yeah, but where is it? Exactly. <laughs> and I was thinking, okay, like somewhere, you know, in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, is it in the green room? Is it on the table somewhere? Is, did it fall over off me, and it's on the ground? But I'm not going to make a big deal out of it. I'm well, grown think, up. Well, think about this. <laughs> think about this. When you are, when you do know where it is yeah. over here on the table, yeah. how often do you reach you over and it. just touch it? Just touch it. You don't want to know the time. Your you phone just, is so familiar. You, you are that still there. Scratch you are on still that here. bottom left corner. Yeah. Yeah. The yeah. piece of the button that's fallen off. You know, like oh my Ew, god. I'm here. I am complaining Anyways. about my glass being scratched. Whoa. <laughs> yeah, a lot of things have scratched. Anyways, thanks, Megan. Now we know. Let's uh, get to with our X-ray eyes. <laughs> Now that we've uh, dealt with that, let's deal with some other stuff on the show. People might actually care about these things. Uh, it's Ask About with Dr. Danielle Johnkind. Whether they provide us with companionship and income, food, or serve a critical role in the ecosystems that support us, animals are vital to human health. Have fun with us as we learn about animal-related topics and about the amazing bond we share with our animal friends. Danielle, maybe we've heard on the news or on TV about the issues regarding antibiotics and the formation of so-called superbugs. And these are bacteria that are resistant to almost all antibiotics. It's concerning. Uh, this phenomenon of antimicrobial resistance has caused all kinds of issues in human medicine as well. And it's to, um, um, led to doctors prescribing way less antibiotics than they used to in times before. But... The reason why you're bringing it up today is because vets also prescribe antibiotics for all species of animals that they care for. So this issue affects this industry also. What is antimicrobial resistance? How does it affect our pets and their vets? And does it have any implications beyond animal health? That's all the stuff we're going to talk about today. Ooh. And we're going to break down some of this stuff. I know. I wonder how long, how much we'll be able to follow along, Danielle. How do bacteria become resistant to antibiotics? Can we start there? Sure. And don't worry, we'll, we're going to do it in layman's terms. Okay, no medical use today? Not a <laughs> no lot? Medical I, th- I think we'll, Rum, we'll you just said it all, right, that. Danielle? <laughs> yeah. I'm explaining. If you can follow me to this point, then hopefully we're good. Okay. Now Danielle will interpret. <laughs> yes. Well, to explain it in layman terms, you know, we'll just say that some bacteria have an edge or an advantage with respect to surviving exposure to certain drugs, you know. So, for example, they might be weakened by an antibiotic, but maybe it isn't quite enough to kill them. So, you know, in a treatment situation, you know, this storm of antibiotics sweeps through the bacterial invaders, you know, killing everything in its path except for those bacteria with that edge, right? So if there are a few that somehow manage to survive and then reproduce, all of their descendants will have the same edge for survival. And if you have if a few of those go on to develop an additional advantage against the same antibiotic, they are more likely to survive and pass on that resistance as well. And we also know that some bacteria can exchange genetic information between them so they can pass some of these traits to others, right? 
And we also have to remember that bacteria are this amazing form of life, you know, like unlike us multicellular organisms, you know, where we have lots and lots of cells in our bodies um, and we take a long time to, you know, make more of ourselves. Um, bacteria measure their generations in minutes or hours, not months, years Oof. or decades like wow. the rest of us do, right? Um, so to give you an idea of how fast that reproductive rate really is, when we grow bacteria in the lab to identify them, one microscopic bacterial cell deposited on, you know, what they grow them in in the lab can multiply enough times to turn into a colony of bacteria that is visible to the naked eye in two days or less. So to give you an analogy, that's like trying to see a single Lego block on the ground from space and then looking again two days later to see a mountain built from Lego blocks. So that's fast, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Man, it's a phenomenal when you think about it. Um, tell us how, in the case of yourself as a vet, how does drug-resistant uh, bacteria affect veterinary medicine? Well, you know, drug-resistant bacteria are a big problem for vets and for their patients. Um, with that incredibly fast population growth that we talked about, it doesn't take very long at all for that genetic change to happen. Um, and it doesn't take very long for the more successful genetic changes to spread through bacterial populations. So, you know, the first big impact we see is that we do sometimes see infections that don't respond to most common antibiotics. And I've personally seen this happen with some urinary tract infections. And one of the other most frustrating things to treat are ear infections caused by a drug-resistant strain of a bacteria called Pseudomonas aeruginosa. And I mean, these are horrific infections for both vets and the dogs that get them. I mean, we're talking about flipping over the floppy part of the ear to find this brick red, swollen and hideously painful mess. Um, Eardrops and oral antibiotics are not going to cut it. <laughs> Some mm. of these patients need extraordinary measures to restore and maintain their quality of life. So, I mean, these resistant infections can be really difficult things to manage when they crop up. Um, the other big impact we see in veterinary medicine has to do with the concept of One Health, which, you know, we've talked about before on the show. So One Health is a concept that acknowledges that the health of humans, animals, and the environment are all interlinked. And how that relates to antimicrobial resistance in bacteria can be seen in how cautious veterinarians have to be in prescribing antibiotics. And, you know, this is really especially true for food animals like dairy cows and pigs, as examples. Um, inappropriate prescribing for food animals can make the bacteria in their bodies resistant to these antibiotics. And since those animals and their food products are in close contact with humans, you know, that gives us potential for that resistance to spread to bacteria that can infect humans as well. And so, you know, we, we have some antibiotics that you're just not allowed to use them in food producing animals. And even though companion animal veterinarians are not as restricted, we still have to prescribe appropriately for similar reasons. I mean, you know, we don't want our pets becoming infected with drug resistant bacteria that could potentially spread to people that are in contact with that pet. And, you know, we don't want to see people getting sick and having limited treatment options because of that process. So, you know, we all have to be sort of conscious of the problem and, you know, select our cases appropriately. It's um, a lot of things to consider and also thinking, you know, how normal and typical it is for 
uh, antibiotics to be prescribed to kind of think in these angles or to understand that it may not be the you know tell-all solution is kind of interesting, Danielle. What are some things that contribute to the development, like the actual development of anti um, um, anti uh, biotic resistance in bacteria? Well, there's some general categories to consider here. And of course, the most obvious is any situation that favors the spread of disease. So if we remember um, how fast those bacteria reproduce, this becomes really relevant. So, you know, we know that animals and people, you know, they need clean water, fresh air and good sanitation to help prevent the spread of disease. So, you know, we want to make sure that, you know, we're doing that, which isn't so much of an issue, I think, you know, for most people, but, you know, in, in other areas like refugee camps and stuff like that, and, you know, shelter situations for pets and that, I mean, these can be real issues. Um, we can also use things like vaccinations to boost immunity. So, um, of course, you know, another situation encouraging the development of resistance is the overuse of antibiotics. So, you know, we really shouldn't be treating infections with antibiotics if the animal's immune system can handle the problem without our intervention. And of course, the last thing is misusing antibiotics. So this includes things like not finishing the prescription, taking leftover medications from another pet's prescription and giving them to somebody else or another pet, or using medications in ways that you know your veterinarian didn't tell you to. So in other words, don't do some of the foolish things we do with each other as humans. Don't do bad stuff. Yeah, don't do bad stuff. <laughs> There's your, the layman's term. That's right. Don't Teach do your bad animals stuff. a little more respect and care. Um, what? <laughs> <laughs> Besides doing that, what are some of the things that pet owners can do to help prevent drug resistance, uh, help prevent drug resistant bacteria? Sure. So there are lots of things that people can do, you know, and um, so the first is to prevent um, disease in your own pets. So, you know, avoiding letting your pets drink out of groundwater sources right. like mm -hmm. ponds, lakes and rivers. Um, there's a whole bunch of things they can get from contaminated water. Um, I also don't recommend feeding raw pet food for the same reason. Um, there have been a significant number of research papers published showing there's an increased risk of bacterial contamination in raw diets compared to cooked ones. Um, you know, and then there was one study published in Quebec in April of 2023 that showed a link between raw pet food and multi-drug resistant salmonella infections in people. And I read that and I was like, oh, yeah. holy cow, that's mm, yeah. so scary. Yeah. You know, um, talk with your vet about your pet's lifestyle, maybe, and get recommendations for what vaccinations they should have and keep those up to date. And of course, another thing people can do is follow the label on the medications your veterinarian has prescribed for your pet. So don't stop the medication sooner than your vet told you to. Don't give it to any other pets. And one of the most common misuse of antibiotics near as I see is when, you know, pets are prescribed eardrops for an ear infection. So as soon as the ear looks better, some people will just kind of stop using the medication, save the rest for the time the next yes. time the ears flare yeah. up. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and then we get this off and on use, right? So that can cause um, problems too. And also, um, 
follow your vet's advice for managing chronic or recurring health issues. If an infection keeps coming back, there's got to be a reason for that, you know? So dealing with that underlying cause helps prevent the need for treating with antibiotics in the first place. Um, you can see that sometimes with things like chronic urinary tract infections. I mean, some bladder stones are associated with that. So, right. you know, if you only treat with an antibiotic but don't get rid of the stones, then the infection keeps coming back. And it, the last thing I'd say is, oh, sorry, Ron, no, go, you ahead, go ahead. ahead. You finish and then we'll see. I was just going to say, um, just acknowledge too that sometimes your vet might tell you that the best course of action at this time is to do nothing but watch and wait. And that seems kind of counterintuitive or maybe a little unfair. I mean, when you think I was up all night with my sick pet, I got no sleep, and now I've taken the day off work and paid for an exam only to be told this too shall pass. You know, what's with that? Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> You know, bear in mind, you know, your vet might just be thinking um, antimicrobial resistance is a problem and I think your pet can handle this. So let's give it a chance to do that before we intervene. Fantastic. Yeah, there's so much to think about. And, and Danielle, we're pretty much wrapping up now, but I was just curious about like indoor versus outdoor pets because a lot of the things that you mentioned in terms of preventative uh, or, you know, not to further increase the chances of these bacteria um, in your pets uh, have a lot, you know, the of lifestyle. these outdoor lifestyles, right? Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yep. So are mm -hmm. your indoor cats facing the same kind of or potential or issues? Well, I think, I think it really depends on lifestyle, like you say, you know, and I think that, you know, I mean, in most people's indoor homes, I mean, you know, they have good sanitation, yep, they yep. have, you know, safe food practices and all that kind of stuff. You know, I think that the risk is less, um, definitely higher if, you know, they're in an environment where, you know, they're more likely to pick up disease or infectious disease from, you know, other animals, eating feces, drinking mm. out of groundwater, those kinds of things. Yeah. And so much of that you can't control, obviously, if you're taking your dog out all the time. The things you could control are stuff like the raw food thing versus, yeah, versus yeah. the puddle drinking. Yeah, exactly. Danielle, thank you. You're welcome. As usual, very informative segments with Dr. Danielle Johnkind. You can tune in weekly for Ask a Veterinarian. After the break, we're going back to the human side of health and talking about gut health. Why is it important and how can we take better care of our gut health? We'll be back with that. Francis Wong has the discussion on wellness. Lots of love and shout outs and thank yous going out for yesterday's primetime special. We had a lot of the team come out. You mentioned Matt Agnew. We also met Greg David, uh, his parents, Greg David from our marketing department. His parents came out. Were there other parents? So many parents canceled. What did we do? Uh, um, now, that's not nice to call your mother out. And Jeff's mom and. Oh, you're calling yeah. everybody out. Everybody's hey, parents. Look at, look at the popular the meters going down, Rum. <laughs> there you go. I think we scared everybody away. I knew no, we shouldn't have brought me. it up Why on Why are you air. getting plural? I'm the nice but, guy. Mm, mm. I was trying to be nice by saying it wasn't you, but you're the one who really scared everyone away. Anyways, Greg's parents were not afraid. They risked it. And they enjoy it. They think time. you should be doing this kind of thing in front of an audience every day while I watch and sleep really? and get paid. Really? I thought I was the one doing the sleeping. Can we take turns? Yeah, okay. Right, one thanks. week you, one That's week me. Fair. Yeah. I'm just that helping you out. Yeah. On Kelly and Rumia. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> It'll be the divide division show. It's Kelly and Rumia a week later. Yeah. Folks, it's time to talk about the world of uh, health and wellness with Francis Wong. 
Hello, I'm Frances Wong, and I invite you to join me as we explore topics of health and wellness so that you can make the best choices for you to live an informed and radiant life. Well, folks, it's that time of the year, you know, where there's plenty of food around and it's so easy like an hour and a half ago, to snack on so many things because there's so much food around. We've talked about mindful eating before, but today, Francis, you want to actually talk a little bit about something quite important, gut health. That's right, Kelly. Yeah, there's no better time than the holidays when it's so easy to overindulge in food. But other than a bit of discomfort and feeling bloated or indigestion, we don't tend to think about some of the other consequences that overeating may have Mm. on the rest of our health and on our gut. Have you either um, ever gotten super excited or nervous, like butterflies in your stomach, or made a quick decision based on your gut feeling? Mm. Oh, yeah. Of course. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, that's actually because there is a brain-gut connection, and our gut is like our second brain. So scientists refer to this smaller brain as the enteric nervous system, but it's really not that small. The enteric nervous system is two thin layers of more than 100 million nerve cells lining your gastrointestinal tract from esophagus to rectum. Oh, okay, that's interesting. I've never actually heard of it this way. And why is it important to pay attention to our gut with that gut-brain connection. Yeah, so the Annals of Gastroenterology also refers to the gut-brain connection or gut-brain access as bidirectional communication between the central and the enteric nervous system, linking emotional and cognitive centers of the brain with peripheral intestinal functions. More than 90% of the serotonin supply is found in the digestive tract, and serotonin is a chemical that plays a big role in regulating many things like our mood, sleep, memory, libido, digestion, and appetite. Of the almost 40 million brain cells that we have, most are influenced directly or either indirectly by serotonin. So you can see how big of an impact our gut health has on the rest of our body. Have you heard of gut microbiome? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep, that world inside yeah. your stomach. <laughs> Yes, yes. So did you know that there are over 200 different species of bacteria, viruses, and fungi in each of our digestive tracts? So these microorganisms that live in our intestines make up our gut microbiome. And while some of them may be harmful to our health, we want the good ones, and some are even necessary to have a healthy body. Well, and I know people talk a lot about that in the sense of even in your mouth, chew so much because you need all that work to be done and your your body needs to get into that. And that's kind of what I, I find so fascinating when we talk about it. it it's really funny to, to kind of go that way. Um, Francis, is there ways we can tell uh, that our gut is, is unhealthy? Um, so there's ways that we can tell, uh, research that talks about, um, how the gut microbiome actually impacts our health. And, um, it's shown that a having a large variety of bacteria in the gut may help reduce the risk of conditions like diabetes or inflammatory bowel disease and psoriatic, um, psoriatic arthritis. Ramya, you're probably not going to like this analogy because I'm going to refer to sports, but I like to think of it as a hockey team. You're going to have forwards and defensemen and goalies, and they're going to be left wing center or right wing or left defensemen or right defensemen. So you don't want to have just forwards or just defensemen, and you certainly don't want to have players just on the left side or the right side. Right. You want to have a good balance to provide coverage for battle, and you can think of my gut microbiome in a similar way. The larger the variety of bacteria, the better chances you have of better health. 
So studies have shown that there are links between gut health and our immune system, our mental health, autoimmune diseases, gastrointestinal disorders, cardiovascular disease, and even cancer. So it's really important that we can um, support our gut health as best as we can. And we were talking about, you were, Kelly, you were just asking about if we can tell if our gut is unhealthy and our body is speaking to us all the time. We mm -hmm. just need to stop and listen to it. So there are many common signs that your gut may be unbalanced, but we're gonna take a look at five. The first one is related to your weight. So if you are unintentionally gaining or losing weight without changing your diet or exercise routine, it's possibly a sign of an unhealthy gut. If your weight is changing, it might mean that your body is not absorbing the nutrients or regulating blood sugar, which may affect the way that your body stores fat. One possible reason that someone may lose weight is that malabsorption could be due to an overgrowth of gut bacteria. And a possible cause of weight gain can be caused by insulin resistance or increased inflammation. Speaking of inflammation, one possible known cause is due to sugar. So the second sign of an unhealthy gut is that of someone who eats a high sugar diet. Now, I know that some of you um, might think, oh, but I know so-and-so, and every time I see them, they're eating a chocolate bar or drinking a can of pop, and they're fine. There's always going to be exceptions, just the way that someone can smoke like a chimney and get away without having lung cancer. But research has shown that eating a high sugar diet or a lot of processed foods um, can decrease the amount of good bacteria and diversity in your gut. And that can lead to increased inflammation in the body and be a precursor to diseases like cancer. And if you find that when you eat certain foods that you feel bloated or get gassy, it could actually be that you have food intolerances. But this could also be a sign that your gut is having issues with digesting certain foods which may be another sign that our gut is unhealthy. And in this case, it could be due to the poor quality of bacteria in our gut. Our symptoms could be dire. Other symptoms could be diarrhea, nausea, or abdominal pain. So it can be a bit of a bad cycle where we can eat something and our body gives us feedback and we don't feel well. Maybe we get an upset stomach and we ignore it. And then we continue to eat the same way. And then the cycle continues. If your gut is balanced and healthy, it will have less of an issue with processing food and eliminating waste because that can also lead to constipation or diarrhea, which we've discussed in a previous segment. Oh, speaking of constipation, have you heard about the new documentary called Constipation? No. No. That's because it hasn't come out yet. Oh. Yeah, see, they're still <laughs> backed up getting it produced. Uh -huh. Yeah. Okay, all right. All right. So, Are you guys in on this joke together? <laughs> okay. <laughs> Francis set me up here. Come on. <laughs> all right. Moving on. Interestingly, sleep disturbances can also be a sign of imbalance in the gut bacteria. The cause is not clear, but it also looks like there is a connection with inflammation, metabolic function, and mental health. And then inflammation definitely has an impact on our health. There are studies that show a link between the gut and immune system. So when there's too much inflammation in the body, it can alter the proper function of our immune system. And then you can get cases of autoimmune disorders where the body attacks itself instead of the actual enemy. There's a... A lot, a lot. That, can, that can be happening that may or may not be contributing to our gut health. And I'm, I'm curious of how much we know or can feel or, you know, trust to listen to our bodies, which you talk about in pretty much every segment. But what can we do to help improve our gut health then? 
Yeah. So it's always going to go back to diet and lifestyle. We've talked about the importance of sleep. And in this case, the, uh, the impact of lack of sleep can mean that we make poor food choices. Maybe we're slamming back two or three coffees a day or worse, oh, choosing okay. energy drinks and sugary foods in an attempt to stay awake. So you do this long enough and you're it's a vicious cycle. Looking... Yeah. Sorry, I was just saying that it's a vicious cycle then. One thing leads to another, leads to another. Speaking, speaking of eating, we want to make sure that we are choosing the right foods that actually support our gut. So we want to avoid fast food or processed foods or foods. I think uh, France is a little choppy at the moment. Yep. Thank you. I think Francis is just uh, probably freezing a little bit. Yeah. I don't want to make up my own uh, version of how to take care of our gut health, though. <laughs> no, no, no. Because so far what she's saying, I know you're like, mm, hold on. Oh, That's dear. all adding up to don't eat as much of that stuff. Don't yeah. eat that anymore. Also, Cut that get better out. sleep or else your diet, yeah. you know, is Oh, you're avoiding the, the, the sweets, are you? Okay. You're going to end up. Yeah. Uh... Francis, okay, are Francis. you back? So, yes, I am. Sorry about that. Um, okay. we start start about over with my... the eating. Oh. <laughs> uh, yeah, drill it All harder right. into Rumya's head, will you? So, so when we're talking about eating, we want to avoid fast foods, processed foods, things that are high in sugar, um, and you want to choose foods that are high in uh, fiber, such as vegetables and whole grains and nuts and legumes. And it's not just the type of food that you're eating, but how you're eating. So we're talking about mindful eating previously and how it takes the brain 20 minutes to register that we have food in our stomach. So we really want to chew our food carefully, as Kelly had mentioned earlier, so that we aren't overeating and we're not overloading our gut. And I meant... Oh. Lost you again. Yeah. I think we're having a bit of a choppy day with... Yeah. Um... It, it, there's so many things, and I remember having that talk with Julia about just chew, chew, chew. Yeah. But also, the, the the stomach is such a root, as Francis has just displayed here, how much we just need things operating and how easy it is to say, hey, that disagrees with me. Mm-hmm. Don't eat it. And the thing is, because it's the fuel center, right? Like yes. everything we eat, everything we maintain or decide that we're not maintaining properly, like the sleep, like our stress levels, our, our hormones of um stress can be contributing to everything else francis we got just about a minute with you so anything you want to wrap with yeah i just want to add that you know along with eating we want to make sure that we're staying well hydrated um because a study has shown that people who drink more hot water that is have less of a type of bacteria that can cause gastrointestinal infections um, and the other thing that people can consider is that you can uh, take probiotics. Um, probiotics are a good live bacteria. So you're getting kind of a boost to your gut bacteria count. And there's something also called prebiotic, which is food that is meant to feed or promote the growth of the good bacteria in your gut. In either case, you probably want to check with your healthcare professional to see if it's a good idea for you. There's a lot of brands out there and there's different number of live bacteria. So just know that not all brands are equal. Mm-hmm. And then lastly... I just want to stress that stress is a part of life, but how we manage it can have an impact on our health, including our gut health. So in general, we want to do things that are fun, um, keep to trying to lower our stress levels and help shift our mood or change our headspace. You know, things like meditating or walking, hanging out with friends, you know, watching comedy shows and laughing, anything that can help to lighten our mood and help us de-stress. Yeah. I always find it interesting when people say, oh, my stress, I feel it in my back or my leg or... 
my stomach, and, and I tend to have always felt it in my stomach, so as soon as you start talking about anxiety, I know what you mean. Francis, as usual, excellent, excellent, and very vital, and not all about the food we want to eat. It's just overall, guys, mm -hmm. pay attention to your tummy. Thank you. Thank you. Francis Wong joins us bi-weekly to talk wellness on the program. Opposite, our nutrition segment with Julia Karanchis and Rumya. There we go to two segments, this one, and times where, you know, we've heard from Julia the same kind of thing. Yep, exactly. And that's because everything is linked to everything else, mm -hmm. right? It's never an isolated situation. And even if we think of our gut as isolated, look at all the um, tiny little parts that and components and living uh, organisms that make up our hundred yeah. in that yeah. biosphere. Exactly. Wow. After the break, we're going to be speaking with Andrew Kushner. He's the director of Bad Roads. This is a theater performance enabling us to correct, connect with Ukrainians uh, around the ongoing invasion. We'll be right back. and Ramia and we are here two hours with you daily that you can check out at 2 p.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv, 4 p.m. Eastern time on AMI-audio or any time you want on your favorite podcast platform. And we uh, have a lot of different types of discussions lined up for you as we join you here. Right now, we're speaking about a theater performance. Crow's Theater in Toronto is presenting Bad Roads. This is a play about the horrors um, of the Ukraine war that intertwines love, sex, trauma, loss, and resistance. Sounds like it's encompassing many, many angles of the discussion, and it aims to help us connect with the Ukraine in ways that, um, you know, are not necessarily possible through the headlines mm -hmm. about the wars and the articles we read and the political discussions. So, of course, that's why we turn to art. And right now, we're thrilled to have Ukrainian-Canadian Andrew Kushner, who's also the director of Bad Roads, to chat more about the production. Andrew, thank you so much for making time to come on the show. Thanks for having me. So let's talk about the inspiration. want to, of course, get into the performance and the ins and outs of everything around that. But what was the inspiration around Bad Roads? When did it come to you and how? I, um, I'm coming on my one year anniversary with this script. Mm -hmm. uh, I was doing a lot of reading last fall in preparation for a series I curated at the Stratford Festival called Encountering Ukraine, Readings in Solidarity. And um, this was at the top of my list. I was so moved when I read this play. I was so disturbed by it. It's a truly visceral piece of writing, the kind of script you read and you can't shake. You dream about it, uh, you, you obsess about it, uh, you wonder greatly about how you could possibly stage something of this nature. And then before long you get obsessed and you hope and you crave to, uh, to actualize it. And so um, I've been living with the script for about a year and, uh, and yet have been living now nearly 21 months with this full-scale invasion and what it's done to me and my community. And this is one of those uh, extraordinary opportunities where I can twin or in a way um, unify my work as a Ukrainian-Canadian activist and my work as a Ukrainian-Canadian theater maker. Uh, so this, this script really hits a lot of um, my keen interests. Andrew, if you were directing this in two years, let's say, do you feel 
I, I mean, I'm going to still imagine that what images that the way you want to bring it forward as vivid as you as it needs to be, as real as it needs to be. Where do you feel acceptance? Are we at a time right now where people I'm never going to say they're ready to, to have mm. those dreams and think in the wake up in the morning and think, I can't get that out of my mind from seeing that play last night. Would you have more trouble putting it on now with people? Look, this is too soon. This is too raw for me. This is too, whether it be producing it, getting it produced or, or audience to come see it. Has there, was there things as you over this last year said, not just how the heck do I get this to the stage in this form, mm. this particular scene? How, with this impact, do I deal with fallout? Or, or what? Was there any problem, any concern that made you almost say, I don't think we're ready for this yet? I think it was a huge question with this piece was, will people come? You know, it's one thing to say that we're going to offer this portal to Ukraine, this, this you know, as so aptly put, this piece of art that is uh, building a bridge uh, across the world to this war-torn uh, nation, to the Ukrainian nation. Um, it's one thing to say we can build that bridge, but will people cross it mm. with us? And I've been incredibly heartened by Toronto and Torontonians, not just Ukrainians in the diaspora here, no. and Ukrainian Canadians in the diaspora, but uh, Canadians of all backgrounds coming together in this space at Crows and uh, bearing witness you know, because at the end of the day, that's what we're asking or what is being asked of us by the Ukrainian artist who created this work, Natalia Borosbit. She's asking us to bear witness to their experience, to their strife, to their grief, to their patriotism, to the ways in which war has mutated their society, yes. their relationships, the ways in which they go about their daily lives, raising their kids, being with their partners, et cetera, et cetera. And so it's a big ask. You know, I, Natalia, I think even in and of herself knows it's a big ask to invite uh, audiences from away to sit in that and I've been very moved we've had sold out after sold out after sold out performance at Crows and we've extended the show by a week because the demand was there mm -hmm. and so uh, even though uh, you know again you, you put it so um, so so uh, aptly that we live in war-torn and war-worn times there's a lot of war going on right now mm -hmm. and we could absolutely in this part of the world uh put our blinders on and and sort of uh try to step away from this reality because we have the privilege to and i've loved the fact that we have uh you know this abundance of community members that are actually showing up and saying you know what i want to understand this better right i'm willing to witness and how is that happening? Uh, Mandra, obviously the, the interpretation or the putting down on paper or speaking to us about it is not ideal in terms of, you know, how to experience this, the experiences to go and check out the actual performance. But I am curious yeah. if you were to kind of walk us through what is happening in the performance or how is it portrayed that people are... Um, wanting to willing to and afterwards leaving the performance feeling like yeah it's more than just the headlines so we're understanding yeah well it's the beauty of theater right it's mm. that we go about it together it's it's not a singular well in a way it's a singular experience you have your own personal encounter with the play but at the end of the day you're doing it alongside others shared yeah right we're shoulder to sh we're sh shoulder to shoulder with other torontonians in the dark receiving the vibrations of this play in real time, in real space. And that is something that you cannot, I mean, talk about an immersive experience. Um, that's uh, about as close as you can come to 
uh, you know, shy of being in a living room. And I've been in living rooms with folks that have been resettled from Ukraine, you know, shy of having that sort of um, close encounter. This is a way through the uh, through the arts, through the proxy of actors to encounter voices from far away. And I would say anybody who comes to the show, I think, will immediately be struck by the way we've configured the space. You're going to walk into what feels in part like a theater, but also an environment. Um, we've covered the floor in what is uh, mulch, but for us represents the the black, you know, extraordinary rich soil of Ukraine. Ukraine is known for its incredibly fertile, fertile soil. It's considered the breadbasket of Europe. And so what is it meant to have audience members walk into this environment that in a way feels like it's been perhaps transplanted or carried over from Ukraine in order to, again, give us that immersive, that very in your bones, in your kidneys kind of experience of art? Um, I have to ask, Andrew, as you put this together, as you sit and watch audiences receive this, I wonder if more thought Again, we go back to World War II, we go back to the Korean War, wars that were so far away from us, and, mm -hmm. and we hear the stories afterwards. Now, as you say, lifetime, that's happening around us. I almost sometimes feel, maybe I'm only speaking for myself, so much conflict in the world in places similar to here. And I wonder mm -hmm. if so many of us are realizing this could be right here on our soil. Well... What I know to be true is is it's interesting you raised the the Second World War. I I descend from the survivors of the Second World War, and in fact, by virtue of the kind of art I make and the kind of things the kinds of things I research, I've I've been back to Ukraine. I've traveled the bad roads of Ukraine, in fact, to go to my uh, you know maternal grandfather or maternal fathers my my grandfather's um, village. You know, I've tried to reconnect with that part of the world, which is to this day marked by that war, right. marked by decades and centuries of conflict. And the fact of the matter is, as much as we can feel the remove of it, perhaps in Canada, we are surrounded by the descendants of that that space and time. You know, my, my grandparents came to this country, raised my parents, who in turn raised me. I mean, I feel deep lineage to that history. And the more I dig and scratch at it, the more I understand why I was raised the way I was raised, why my community is the way it is, why we, you know, um, have been able, frankly, in this moment to really, really galvanize and fight the erasure that, that Russia is perpetrating right now, or the attempted erasure of Ukrainian people and Ukrainian lives. Because this is not a new story, you know, and if you pay attention to history, and you look at the way you've been raised and the stories you've internalized, you realize this is a long story that we're all a part of. And we, we, it's living memory. It's in our midst. Yeah. And so um, I love the fact that the theater and this play in particular can kind of close the gap. It puts us into a starker proximity to something that may feel worlds away. But when you realize that a Ukrainian grandmother is contending with how to raise her granddaughter, which right. is one of the scenes in the play, you know, you realize that that is a pretty universal struggle. <laughs> You know, what does it mean sure. to actually Absolutely. be a healthy family, mm -hmm. be a healthy family in times of deep strife? Yeah. Well, Andrew, we have um, a tr the trailer of Bad Roads we want to um, share with our listeners and viewers. So let's get to that and then we'll continue talking. Wonderful. The ways in which Bad Roads cracks open what's happening a world away, it 
uses human story, human relationship, you know, the dynamics of, of how we navigate complex situations. We get to experience that in real space and time. And in this play, I think there's a lot about the unspoken changes that people go through, whether it's being attracted to someone who they normally wouldn't be attracted to, or you find yourself crossing moral lines that you had drawn in the sand. There is a tremendous amount of humor in the piece, but it's contextual. Humor is, is essential uh, for sanity. And the moment, I think, we feel that characters lose or lack humor in their situations, the more we feel that they're on edge, that they are uh, in trouble. I'm trying to re personally remove judgment on, on what my characters are going through and trying to understand why they are making those choices. For them, it can seem like this is the only choice I have to get to where I need to get to next. You know, this play is so much about love, I've discovered. Of course, it's about war, but it's so much about love and how love is mutated and impacted by war. I think bad roads are choices. Drama is made of bad choices. So this drama is made of bad roads. I want to go to that humor piece. Um, it's so interesting because a lot of times I think we talk about humor being healing, um, humor after conflict, humor in the way that you re-remember an argument with your partner or with a family member, you know, kind of breaking that ice, right? Um, and it, it, well, for me, it almost seems far-fetched to think of humor in the sense of war, in the sense of this scale of devastation. Is there anything you want to say to that, Andrew? And this is not me resisting the idea. This is just like, wow, that is so, you know, beyond my my current capability to even understand how to think of yeah. humor in these ways. Yeah, I know. I think we often think of humor being something that comes after. And I think Ukraine and other contexts, uh, and I can speak to a few other examples, I think I think there are contexts wherein humor is not the after, it's the through. Mm -hmm. And it's very much how people cope with right. the senseless, with the yeah. incomprehensible. Um, humor is a way to keep in touch with some sort of tender bit of our humanity in the face of forces that are trying to eradicate it. And so humor is survival. You know, humor, is, as Diego puts it, humor has something to do with sanity. Mm. Um, you know, when we can um, laugh together, it's like we're we're shaking something off or trying to at least. And I think something that uh, anybody who's been following, for instance, the meme culture out of yes. Ukraine since yeah. the full-scale invasion, I mean, humor is alive and well for Ukrainians. You know, even as they are confronted by you know, all of this genocidal violence, they're going, how do we keep human? How do we keep from That's feeling it. like yeah. we are being hollowed out? The and day sometimes day. laughter is the best medicine, yeah. you know? Day to day. Um, exactly. And and I'd say this play, the humor is something you got to squint your ears for. You know, it's not, uh, this is not a rollicking comedy by any stretch of the imagination. Right. It's a very, very, if, if we can even touch the word comedy, it's a dark, dark comedy. But I'm reminded of other, you know, contexts. I, I just worked on a piece called Casey and Diana at the Stratford Festival, and we're remounting that this coming year. You know, that was the the play takes place in an AIDS hospice. You know, this is in the in the early '90s, right? It's and it's a really heavy context, and yet, my goodness, the humor that that environment elicited in order to survive mm. again 
the unfathomable. And it forces um, us to take take that angle, right? To let our minds go there to heal. Andrew, we got to wrap with you. I'm so sorry. I yeah. wish we could keep talking about oh, this, but yeah. it's, it's brilliant. Thank you so much for your time and all the best. And for bringing this to so us, much. Andrew. It's yeah. tremendous. Well, I, I really appreciate you spotlighting. I appreciate it a lot. Thank you. We were speaking with uh, Andrew Kushner. We were talking about Bad Roads, which he's the director of. And it is, of course, highlighting um, the war uh, in Ukraine and everything else around it, the different angles. We got a whole other hour of Kelly and Ramya coming your way. We got Women Talking. That's the book of the month we're featuring later on in the book club. Also, Woodworking with Jeff Thompson, talking about miter saws and dados. But up next, two Christmas parties being hosted by the CNIB in Nova Scotia. We want to learn more about it with Julie Martin, our community reporter. We'll be back. Keep it here for more of Kelly and Ramya on AMI-tv. Welcome back. It's Kelly and Ramya with you, kicking off hour two of the show. We practically ran out of hour one, uh, but that was an incredible conversation with Andrew, right? Director of Bad Roads. Check it out. Crow's Theatre is presenting it in Toronto if you get the chance. It sounds really moving. Um, And, you know, one thing I wanted to say, but it didn't get a chance to, mini cut for time, if you will, is, you know, talking about the humor and devastation, um torture, however you want to, you know, like just mentally, it is exhausting to go through these kind of enormously uh, terrible things and from day in, day out, right? You, your families, your loved ones, you don't even know from day to day whether you're going to make it out. And so reaching for humor is, I don't think, unfathomable um, or, you know, that overwhelming to think about as a person going through it, Kells, but as an audience member or as an observer or as someone who's not part of the community, who cannot empathize, who cannot necessarily be there uh, as one of these people going through the situation directly, I think it's, for me, uncomfortable thinking about it as humorous. You you feel almost guilty, but the reality is, this is reality. After a year, after a month, you're going to laugh at things, whether it's watching your cat, whether it's somebody telling you something fun. It doesn't have to deal with the war, but the war can only be, the conflict can only be so ever-present. It's same with yeah. if somebody is diagnosed with a, a, a terminal health condition. Exactly. You, you are going to laugh. Oh, we say about disability all the time. All the time. Well, look at yeah. the dark humor we often have, laughing about, you know, making mistakes and mm. kind of laughing at, look. but when we talk about when you're living through so much stress and worried every moment is a bomb hitting my house, yeah. but you'll still have that. And I think it's so hard for people um, to, to find that laughter or think or conceive you laughing. You know, you have a family member. I remember when my dad was very, uh, you know, much, we were concerned he was going to die. Mm-hmm. And I did what my father would want me to do every day. And that's laugh. Laugh. Uh, At least once a day. It's time to check in with one of our community reporters as we bring on Julie Martin from Pictou County, Nova Scotia. Julie, welcome back to the show. How are you? Thank you. I'm well. How are you two? We're excellent. Uh, Great show today. Uh, Oh, my goodness. Great conversations. You know, I I did. I wanted that conversation to carry on. I was thoroughly enjoying it. And even you two chatting about it right now, it's like, 
can we not just keep talking about this? <laughs> and like Rum said, it's that kind of cut for time that we do Fridays, having to extend yeah. because there's just so much to say. But Julie, you got a lot of things here. We'll start with December 6th here. This is uh, the Irish Descendants, and this is yeah. uh, presented, sorry, excuse me, December 15th, excuse me, uh, uh, for this show. Um, and this is a really get into the holidays, isn't it, with these guys? It really is. And Nobody knows how to parody like the Newfies or any Maritimer for that matter. Um, they really are tap, toe tapping events um, for any Maritime musician. However, the Irish, the way they've kept this up and the traditions that they've kept along with it, because we all know that, Nova, uh, not, oh my goodness, Newfoundland is steeped in Irish, Irish history. So. Yeah, it, um, it really is going to be a night to remember. And again, you know, if you want to go and um, you don't have anybody to go with, keep in mind the DeCoste Performing Arts Centre has sided volunteers that will be your vocal eyes for your nice. uh, time at the theatre. Wow. So, yeah. That's we'll so, so wonderful. Mm -hmm. And, yeah, people will because it's just such a, a, a comfy time. We've, we've I mentioned them before. Wow. How nice, Julie. Yes. Really get you in the mood for Christmas with that oh, music. Yeah. That's yeah, your yeah. kickoff. And yeah. we're going to further get into the uh, Christmas vibes with some of these parties that are coming up. Yes. So the CNIB has its 10th annual Christmas party. And that is on December 6th, mm -hmm. if I remember correctly. Mm -hmm. It's in person if, you want, if you're in the Halifax area and you can go in person. They would love to see you. And if not, like myself, then I will be joining virtually via Zoom. And also um, the wonderful staff at the CNIB in Nova Scotia will dial you in. So if you have nice. a landline and that's your only means of communication, then they will call you. Um, all you have to do is press number one to say, yes, you want to join. And if you don't, you hang up. And that's it. And you can come and enjoy the fun and the performances and the laughter because, you know, a laugh a day keeps life away. Yes. Didn't we the best say. medicine. Exactly. So, a belly laugh yeah. too. Okay, yeah, so this so. is cool because you have the in-person um, one that you can attend, if that's your yes. vibe. If you don't even feel like leaving your house, because who really does this? Yes. You might be like you Kelly. You can go to Zoom, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you can go to Zoom on the 8th and have um, that accommodation. How fun. Do we know what they have lined yeah. up for any of these? Um, I, I, I do, unfortunately. I'm so sorry to your viewers and to the two of you. My electronic magnifier is on the glitch, Oops. so everything I have written down, I can't read. So I apologize, <laughs> but I do it's know okay. they have different, you know, different activities planned and music yeah. and yeah, yeah. So I mean, I'm sure there's lovely. some games, and you can always bring your own snacks, at least a Zoom one, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Okay, yeah, Fantastic. exactly. You can even have a quick, you know, nifty shot if you want. You can't do that at the CNIB. <laughs> do that at home for sure so, yeah and um and julie like with a lot of these uh, parties the real essence of it is the mingling right it's the hanging out oh, yeah. 
seeing people, talking to people you haven't in a while. Um, and this time of year, these kind of like just lovely interactions mean so much to so many of us. Yeah. yeah. And that's a perfect segue into our next party which is our local um, VIPC group, Visually Impaired of Pictou County. We meet once a month for a social at the library, tea and snacks, blah, blah, blah. And even though there are a lot of CNIB clients in the area, they don't always want to come to that type of thing, which is fine. It's not everybody's cup of tea. But I want to emphasize that the VIPC slash CNIB Christmas party, which is in person in New Glasgow, is open to every single CNIB member, whether you've attended one of our meetings or not, come along, meet us. CNIB is is paying for either an entree and so, sorry, an entree and either a starter or dessert and a soft drink hmm. if you want, you know, the extra course and a glass of wine and you want to bring a friend or a partner or any plus one, then you're responsible for that. But the meal and either a starter or a dessert is is provided by the CNIB and we'd love to see you come and meet us. It's at the East side restaurant which is on Provo Street in New Glasgow December 8th yes. 2 p.m. until we leave until you close the place that, that's what you're trying yeah, to say Julie <laughs> you know like 1 a.m. or whatever no okay they're probably 10 o'clock at night like then they'll say all right guys get out we got to sweep the floor and build a new dog from all the guy yeah, dog hair yeah, yeah and keep this <laughs> under your hat don't tell anybody okay but no. I'm taking blindfolds so that the Plus ones can dine in the dark as well as uh, beautiful. That's so, excellent. Yeah. Um, Julie, you got another topic for us of real interesting, and this is conversational English that, that people can uh, come and get to learn and practice their English. And this is at the uh, Pictou County Library uh, Wednesdays from six to seven p.m. Yes, and I'm super excited about this one. I love to volunteer. I think it gives us so much. Um, happiness and joy and feeling of worth. And this is something that no matter what your ability is, as long as you can speak English, you can go to the library and volunteer in this. Make friends, have a lovely chat with people you've never met before and help them um, settle into this beautiful com uh, community where we all live. Um, because it is hard. And the three of us have talked about this before. Even if you're not from, uh, uh, you know, a, from another country that speaks a different language. Um, Kelly, your dad, moving from Montreal, struggled with English when he moved to Ontario. Yes, he loved his and, French, you know, but you're right. Yeah. And Ramya, your parents, when they moved here, and mm. I struggled with certain words, even though I spoke English. So I think it's a huge thing, yeah. help without Meaning. you realizing and 
it's going to be enjoyable. Well, English is tricky. Languages are tricky because in English, for example, so many words mean the same thing. So many things mm. mean the same thing. You know, whether you pick up a exactly. converter for your television, the clicker, the you know, what the how the heck do you explain this yeah. to someone coming yeah. to your country and saying, well, yeah, here, you know, hand me the TV clicker, the what? Yeah, you know, the box. Yeah. What the what? Yeah. What box? What yeah, yeah. <laughs> but what a lovely way to start the new year, hey? Yes. Go make new friends and help somebody bring a huge smile to somebody else's face mm. because you're helping yeah you bet, julie Can't it's think of so a wonderful nice way to start the new year well and when you're learning a new language too or when you're trying to settle into a place where you there the primary language is not yours um there's no wrong way there's no lack of ways to get involved to become part of the community you just got to insert yourself right so all of these places i mean now you can just download apps and Mm -hmm. and get to know people through apps and have conversations and do it all digitally but i think like immersing yourself is always the best option yeah you hear so many people talk about that and you learn the slang and that's yeah, kind of yeah, the thing yeah. that the apps try yeah. to steer from because <laughs> most people don't want, don't need mm-hmm. to learn this language. No, Julie, no. absolutely wonderful. Uh, I think next me month too, we're yeah. off when it's your turn, but don't quote me on yes. that. We will talk to you soon. We will. Take care, guys, and Merry Christmas if I don't talk to you before. Thanks, Julie. Thanks, Julie. Same Happy to you. holidays. Bye. You bet. Uh, Julie Martin from Pictou County, Nova Scotia, bringing a community reporter report. We do these on the program Monday, Tuesdays, and Wednesdays. Once a month, we like to get woodworking with Jeff Thompson, and sometimes he brings us tools and highlights of those. Sometimes he lets us in on projects and how you can get involved in an accessible and safe way. Today, we're covering the miter saw and dado. I don't even know if I'm saying that tool right. We'll be back to find out on Kelly and Romeo. Don't go away. There's more great conversation with Kelly and Ramya right around the corner. the show here with you lots of fun tuesday energy on kelly and Ramia, and that's because we've got these staples right the great tuesday staples mostly in this first hour though Kels. second hour is all of our monthly rotations mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so so would you go to a um, christmas party via zoom or would you feel too much like you're missing out being in person if I actually want to go to the Christmas party I'll go in person but if I'm on zoom it's because uh, there's going to be no alcohol there and I will Drink it at home. And you're just listening. See, that's what I think. You would just settle back and have your drinks, your food, or whatever yeah, that you don't want to share. Yeah, but is it Zoom mingling, or are there, like, performances or things going on, like, you know, structured? That's the thing with Zoom. I, I find that I don't jump in as much, and then so I'm, I don't feel as engaged. More of a listener. Mm-hmm. And, and sometimes entertainment has got to come through the right way, or you're getting all this, like, you yeah, know, you may not yeah. be able to make it out, or somebody talk, uh-huh, and all the noise, right. um, if there's laughter. But even just conversation, if you stick... Whatever the, the device in the middle of the table, man, you, really, you need a really good microphone Gosh, yeah. and not Sounds mind like that kind of noise. Meeting? Sounds like every one of our team's meetings. <laughs> Folks, let's welcome Jeff Thompson in for our woodworker segment. Hi, I'm Jeff Thompson. Let's talk wood. Practical woodworking from a blindness perspective. It's not, can I do it? It's, how can I do it? Now let's get started. 
You betcha, Jeff, pal. Thank you for being with us. Welcome back. Uh, you do any of these parties by Zoom, Jeff, at all, or are you the in-person person? I'm the uh, in-person person. Yeah. I, I struggle with the idea of a party unless I'm just being a fly on the wall and wanting to be nosy and just listen in for whatever reason that could be. I, I, I have to go in person, say hi, and that. The only thing is... My time usually is very limited. I'll just like, you know, after an hour and a half, well, oh, geez, I got to go. It's the same almost for everything, Mm. it seemed, post-pandemic. Yeah, that's the kind of thing, Jeff. I can see you coming in. Are you a long lingerer at a party, the last one to leave or the first one out the door at the appropriate time? Uh, Depends on the... Depends on the party. You mentioned fly on the wall, fly off the wall. A fly just showed up here, and it's buzzing around, bouncing off the windows, and Oh, a visually impaired guy with a fly swatter is not a fun thing. Oh, <laughs> my gosh. I, I hate when you hear them hit something and you just hear that body slap up against it. It's like, <laughs> you know, it's one thing to hear the yeah. buzzing in the air. But when you actually hear the, it's, oh, it takes the skin. It right now. Yeah. But but as a person who's blind, what a way to find him. And then see if he throws you out. Sir, let's take your it's let's distract you a little bit. Let's start with miter saws. Miter saws, it's one of the most handiest tools. And I would say it's one of the affordable tools if you want to get started on it. And it's pretty accessible. There's three types of miter saws. Uh, Kelly, you might remember the chop saw. Yep. It just basically cuts lengths of boards. And that's that was a popular tool for many years. And, you know, it put a stationary position for the circuit. Uh Circular saw, the handheld one, but this was stationary. And then they started in by beveling. So you could tilt them left or right, probably with the first ones, just one direction. So you could cut 45 degree angles for trim work. And a lot of trimmers use them specifically. Then they expanded and they did a compound uh, saw. So Mm -hmm. not only could you bevel it, but now you could angle it left or right. And that that was a uh, quite a big feature for people to do multiple types of cuts that you could do on it. And now they have what they call a dual compound miter slide chop saw. Wow! <laughs> um, Good grief! Sounds like something in a I kitchen. Know. Yeah, yeah. Hard <laughs> to get like that the on kitchen. there. God. Okay. But how do you for for yourself well, have it? How do you how do you kind of set it and everything like that? How accessible? How you know, like in the sense of, I mean, like you say, it's it's so wonderfully multi-purpose. Even one of the other ones that you previous, like previous incarnations, uh, uh, incar- say it for me there. Well, versions. Well, one of the <laughs> incarnations. Uh, yes, thank okay. you. Uh-huh. It wouldn't come out. <laughs> I, I felt I needed another syllable. Right. Um, you know, even one of the other versions of it. Uh, how would you? How did you find working them, Jeff? Well, what's really nice is if you if you cut a board with it, and then you flip it to the other side, it should be straight again. So that's one way of checking to see if you're straight. But if you release the blade and go at an angle, they have these detents that like a, like a ball bearing and a spring, it mm-hmm. locks into certain spots as you go. Yes. And if you're used, going to use IRA or any other type of device or something, you could at start starting when you first get it, Find out what those detents are. You're going to have 22 and a half. You're going to have 45. You're going to have 30 up to about 45 and maybe a little past that. But the detents are 
specifically what typically we're using most of the time, 45, 22 and a half, which is half of 45, uh, 30, which will give you a 30 and a 60 in a sense. And then if you're going to tilt it, you know, uh, vertically at a tilt, they have these pins. Each saw manufacturer does different types of things, but you pull a pin and it'll drop and it'll hit that pin and that'll be at 45 or at another setting. But once you got those down, you just, it's automatic. You just kind of go to those things. I click over three spots. I'm at 30. If I go four, I'm at 45. So, you know, you get used to the machine once you use it a little bit and it's nice that it locks into those mm -hmm. positions. Um, is there anything you want to say on like actually cutting the the depth and things like that? How do we, from one of these uh, versions to the other of these tools, does it actually make a difference for helpfulness, for usefulness, for ease? Um, or, you know, are you just upgrading as you go? Well, some people have two of these machines because they do type of work where one is used specifically for this type of stuff. Yeah. The others is used for another one. Um, oh, no. Is it one of these answers you... where everything is useful for something? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but at, when you mention the depth, the neat thing about a miter saw is typically you're going to pull all the way forward. Then you're going to go down and push and cut the board. Mm -hmm. So the, the safety is good. If you get your body position, always right. right. I always, always put my right shoulder right in front of the blade. So I'm pulling directly on there and everything else uh, is away from it. I'm holding it and everything. And when you talk about depth, the neat thing about a miter saw, if you don't have the capable, a table saw, you can do dado cuts on there and I it's knew I was dado. Saying the word wrong. I said yeah. dado before the break. Uh-huh. But I knew what you're talking about. Thanks. <laughs> Thanks. So if you set the depth so you don't cut all the way through the board, then you just le left a groove in there, something you could roll a coin in or something like that. But if you do a series of these, you could start getting wider and wider, and that's called a dado. Like you would uh, say you put a board on each side, right and left, and had a dado on each side. You could slide a shelf right in those grooves. That's one use of a dado. Or on the bottom of a breadboard that you pull out of a cabinet, you feel that finger groove. That's usually a dado blade raised up and then lowered down again. So it give you a groove in there. So dados are really handy. They save a lot of time. But on a miter saw, you can do some dado cuts on it by moving one eighth at a time, inch at a time across. It takes a lot of cuts. And that's where a dado comes in. Wow. Talk about the handiness of it because of what you're, you know, trying to do. And especially as you work, you work on a bunch of it, right? Like if you're doing that and you need that much. Um, I want to talk about something that you, you, you kind of hear related to this too, a stack. Um, what does it look like? Dados is, is a stack, like right. a stack of so, pancakes. Right. You know, boom, boom, boom. Now we're all hungry, right? Oh, my God's sake, yeah. <laughs> okay. So if you if you tilt that those pancakes up before you put the syrup on, but the dados are a stack of blades that are on the arbor, and the first one cuts on this edge. Then there's what they call chippers that go in between them. So 
if you have each one's about an eighth of an inch. So as you go up, eight of them would be a full inch. So depending right. on how wide of groove you want to do is how many chippers you put in the middle, thus putting on the last one, then on the table saw. Then you set your height by raising it up and make your cut. And then you can cut a, a nice good path right through there without going all the way through. So that can be used for, Oh, any lot, lots of different types of things in woodworking where you're making joinery and stuff like that. So mm. I use it on the gumball machines where the pull stick pulls through that's used on a dado. And that's pretty tricky. And I just used one on making a post for a railing on a deck where it has to straddle a two by 10. It has to straddle. So I had it straddle it by making a dado cut out and it slid right onto it and then you screwed it on there and it gives it a lot more support and that more sturdiness the other thing about angles is we can talk about this when we talk about talking devices they make these angle blocks that talk and you set it on the blade and if you tilt your blade it'll give you voice readout that'll say wow. 20 21 22 20 it's pretty accurate too so when you're going to slide that post, you want to make sure, obviously, you've got that exact width for that. Um, do yeah. you make that slot, that swath that you cut, do you make it yes. a millibit, like how much bigger than what you need for where it's sliding across? And, or and do you put anything, is there something friendly to the wood that in the case of this, whether whether it's weathering because of the expanding, because of sliding it off, whatever things would also complement that? Well, the neat thing about the dado blades is it comes with these little pieces of metal disc that you can put between the blades and then you can increase it by just a scotch. A scotch is very tiny. Just like a, a little like a, bit. Like a dash, like just a dash. Yeah, yeah. just a dash. And, uh, you know, you make it a little thicker. And depending on if you're outside or inside, if it's inside, this type of thing, you won't have to make so much move. But you can make it as tight as you want. And, you know, and if you test it out and it's not, bring it back on there. But the big thing about when you're doing this is you want a good miter. You want a good grip. You want to know exactly where it's cutting. And I use two click rulers. Those are the accessible measuring devices. Mm -hmm. I set it where my first cut is going to get and to my last one. And when I get close to that, I'm measuring every time, even though it takes a lot more time because you got to shut the machine off, wait for it to stop, safety first, and measure and check. Because if you cut too much. Yeah. It's pointless. You've ruined the project. Mm. Yep. That part of the project for sure. Yeah. Wow. Wow, Jeff. How long did it take you, Jeff, to kind of... Uh, and what she wants, so Jeff, know, is how like, many mistakes did it take yeah, for you to decide? But I, not really. <laughs> it's more like how many projects do you have, did you take part in or types of projects to differentiate between, you know, like all the different tools um, that we mentioned today and kind of know this is what's ideal for this situation? Well... When you're making stuff and uh, you, you you get in these groups, like we mentioned the WW4B, Woodworkers for the Blind Group, mm-hmm. and that's WW4B.org, you can listen to what they're doing and observe what they're doing. And we get together like once a year and we 
chit chat about things and we're doing tonight we're doing something on making jigs and stuff like that so mm. this is an area where all of a sudden you get oh wow i've been doing this and it's really hard to do mm. <laughs> and all yes. of a sudden you hear about dado blades and it's like oh Bing. wow you did that in 20 minutes it takes right. me an hour yeah. and so you save your money and invest but you know like we said we don't want to go out and buy all these tools that, from a list and wonder how we're going to use them it's eventually you'll build up and you might want to get another tool and you know it's they're, they're not cheap all the time but they're very practical when you're talking about time and safety and you know the projects that you're diving into yeah, mm-hmm. stitching time saves you that dime there you go <laughs> jeff thanks pal appreciate it always wonderful to talk woodworking with you as we do every month here on the program uh we do this on the fourth tuesday of the month take it easy pal take care you guys and after the break we have our monthly book club on the last tuesday of the month we um review a book of choice this time i chose women talking this is our 2018 release by Canadian author Marion Toos. And we're going to talk more about how we thought the red read went after the break. It's fun, insightful, and inclusive. Kelly and Ramya return in a minute. Welcome back. Thanks for sticking around and hanging out with us. This is Kelly and Ramia. Kelly McDonald, Ramia Emmethan. We are the hosts of this daily show on AMI-audio, AMI-tv, and your favorite podcast platform. So let's get to it because it is the last Tuesday of the month. Business as usual with our book club. So once a month, we get to choose a book, choose a recommendation of a book from a listener or a colleague, We rope a lot of people into this, and um, this time I picked a book. I guess I couldn't find anybody else. Yeah, Kels? That's what usually ends up happening. And No, there's other reasons, folks. We won't go into all that, but the the important part is it forced me to have to pick one. It's my (laughs) turn. Next one. So fun. Exactly. So um, anyways, we and you can review these books. We get into it. The authors, the narrators, we love them. We don't love them. We have very candid discussions at this time. So the book for today is Women Talking. This is a 2018 release. It's by Canadian author Marion Taves. I've been saying their last name wrong in all kinds of ways, but it is Taves. Uh, And it's the seventh book she's written, so just some you know context that she's a very well-renowned author. Um, and of course, this movie, or sorry, this book was made into a film that was Oscar-nominated, I believe, last year, 2022. And so, lots of uh, attraction, attention, and just uh, so much insight into people's reviews and feelings about the book slash film. Mm. We read it. It was just over six hours. I haven't as an seen audiobook. the film though. No, but but, but I can imagine. Yep. It's an actor's dream to be in this, as we God, as people, yeah. just because yeah. of the the choice characters and the roles. Mm. Uh, it's one and of those the stories. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's really one of those that I think uh, f- for the lady actresses out there, it, you know, it would be really something for mm-hmm. those getting these roles. But as an audio book, and by the way, like the book and um, film are very close in in uh, how do you say it? Like the the movie straight stays very true to the book, as far as I'm. 
uh, aware. I would imagine. Yeah, but the audiobook itself is just over or just under six hours. I believe it's just over six hours, and it's set in a remote Mennonite colony in Bolivia. Okay, and the whole thing is very situational, meaning uh, it revolves around a group of women who in the colony who come together to discuss their decision-making. So this is a process of a decision-making around a series of sexual assaults that have occurred within the Mennonite community in their colony. And the setting itself is very important because it signifies the context around all of it. Um, obviously, there's a lot going on, Kells, in terms of what they're dealing with, um, how much there is to actually discuss, but it's all happening, you know, within the barn, within the colony, within the the realm of things so what about the setting and the context stuck for you well again i now that you mentioned the film thing i i totally stop and think this is a place a conversation where the secret of meeting this discussion these decisions made by these women are in a barn um a barn where these women sit around talk different ages different generations smoking some mm-hmm. of them in a barn where there's all sorts of hay. Yeah. Because like they're literally having meetings where they're taking notes, minutes. Taking notes. They have someone taking That's notes. What this whole thing is. Uh, who is the only character we meet in the book that actually seems to spend time away? Who is England? Yeah, London, England. Where his who? family, uh, August. August, yes, yes. His, the, the, the minute taker. Yes, <laughs> he is the only of the males. He, he stands out. To us, as as the, he is a device in there to take notes, but help us understand and and hear and have certain things explained to us that could not be really explained by the females involved in the decision making um, over these atrocities to the to the ladies of of the community. So I found that very interesting done this way. The barn, of course, these people are having a secretive meeting. Mm-hmm. Um, in a barn on a farm where the one one character's husband, this is his barn. Mm-hmm. The dominance of males in this community regardless. However, these males had been found out to be attacking these women, drugging them, attacking them in their sleep, and were prosecuted. We see none of that. We hear none of that. We hear these, the yeah, aftermath. Yeah, these things are already set up for us when yes. the book starts. We yeah. are getting the, if you will, what action has to be taken not even to seek revenge, to protect future women disgusted in what has happened, what's gone on, but an acceptance of moving on in life. And this is where you get the what the right thing is to do, what not. This is where I feel uh, in a film be some choice films or um, acting roles. But in this, you get to hear and very distinct female characters without the interference, Ramya, of the men in question. Yep. Um, we hear strength. And again, in a society that we may not at all be able to relate to, mm. believe this is going, almost feel like, well, these women don't seem to have any rights. How do these guys even get prosecuted? It's, right. It seems like the kind of, we're used to an environment like this where the men run rickshot over whoever and do whatever they want without the prosecution. Well, beyond the prosecution in this case, the women are trying to decide what they need to do beyond the actual supposed punishments of these men. Right, right. And that, you know, you mentioned a really interesting point, which is that we don't get to hear from the men. They are We don't even know what their sentence was. We don't even know 
because we're getting just the conversations, the alleged accusations, the punishments that are sort of happening, but not necessarily. Like the men are going to return at any given point. At one point, they do return. And yeah. there's a lot of fear and hesitation and running around and lying. And then, oh my gosh, we're lying and we're teaching our children to lie. What do we do now? This is, you know, there's so much religious uh, undertone and overtone in this entirety of the process. The fact that they're hiding and smoking and talking about this in plain context right without any kind of like uh you know let's let's not call the spade a spade like they are fully putting everything on the table and as things get more frustrating as the conversations get more uh to become more debate like as the women start to turn on each other uh-huh. as some women are accused of being naive your truth is not the truth right that kind That's of right. tone comes out you get to see just uh, how uncomfortable this whole thing can be, and not just for us, the listener, but August, the minute taker, right? So, you know, the irony uh, is not um, hidden that he is the only man that we really get to hear from. But also, he's the only character in this book that we get internal uh, from, right? Any internal thoughts at all, because the other women are, we're getting their speech through August, whatever they say out loud, whatever they question. And then, of course, his interpretations of their responses and reactions, whether it be verbal or nonverbal. Um, then we get snippets, Kells, of what goes on outside. So, you know, there's this scene where the, the two children and August, as they, everyone takes a break for lunch or whatever the context was, goes out and there's a truck parked out there and they're playing some song. Can't remember what the song is, no, but a popular song. Um, in the time frame and the children are listening and hanging out and he's also watching the children listen to the song and hanging out. So that is the snippet of society. And then later on, he thinks of the music during the uh, the barn dis- conversation, like one of their meetings and thinks, oh, you know, like th- this is not allowed. Right. Like we're not supposed to be taking part and participating in society outside the boundaries of this colony. So then you understand as well, like there's really no external influence for these women. When the men leave, the men are being exposed to outside for you know work or for, whatever other yep, reasons. Yep. You know they need to go trade goods, including and such. the law. Yes. When the offenders are punished. Yes. Yes. Exactly. But the women don't. Right. No. They don't get that right to go outside. So everything that they're experiencing, you get that tone of, um, not having had the privilege of going outside, of seeing an external world, even something as precious or cherished or treasured uh, or even rebuked mm. as a book. Yep. Or music. And or music. And, and it's yep. interesting because the young people, the teenage boys, are doing stuff that you, as, as August, well, you shouldn't be doing that. Yeah. But we have the women doing stuff who ever, never get up. It's almost as if they're in the same position of, Teenage boys doing stuff, whether it's smoking in a barn, mm. whether in, and then lying and so on. And this is a Christian book. Um, I had to stop because that's that's the category it's in and, and think, do I feel, recognize this as a book that should be in that category? And I see so many reasons. Okay, yes, but it was different than what I expected. I also find books where there's a lot of this kind of dialogue. I think the length was perfect because so many people would find this a little too long. Um, 
But I really, with August going away to England, we got a taste outside of that community. We got a taste that he understood a bit differently the world around of course. the community. Comes back, but you almost felt the shunning that he would get by the males, some of the mistreatment or being taken as a joke by yeah. a lot of the people in it, including some of the females. And I found that very interesting um, a way that this individual was used as a device as he was as the note taker for everything. But there was a level of, of disrespect that he he was given. The, mm. the women, and let's say outside of the attacks on the women, there was a level of whether they felt prisoner or disadvantaged, disrespect for the males. The males, obviously, see the women in a certain way. That is the one thing rife in, in it for me, a lot of disrespect for individuals. Even fighting amongst themselves, each other's opinion. And I know you get tired. Everybody has a group of friends you hang out with. Uh-uh, he's going on about that again. Oh, he thinks he knows everything about everything. You're yep, always yep. going to have that. And you did in this group of women trying to make a decision. They, they, they knew they, they had to do something. They all wanted some action. But you saw on the different levels of the passive-aggressive the willing to just say, look, guys, this is the way it is. This is where our world. And the, no, we're leaving Yes. This behind to go or out we're there. We're staying, but we're slaughtering. That's them. right. We are. Yeah. There was action decided. There's going to be more punishment mailed out. But how are we just not going to be here? Are we going to do something? What's going to who are we taking with us of the children? How? It's very raw. Right. And very that's raw. what the six hours was. You're hearing it, of course, from the perspective of August, who's not like he's not technically personally invested other than maybe his feelings and love uh, and history with Ona, um, mm-hmm. one of the women. Uh, and But other than that, like, what you really got was just raw perspective from the women. And you could tell, like, who was so, even with the, the children, the two younger women, the fact that they were like, I'm bored, you know? Like, what am I still doing here? What are we still doing here? Like, that's the kind of vibe I got from them. Yep. And then you got from the mothers, the mother who lost her child um, to the sexual assault, um, the mother who, uh, you know, her whole identity has been reformed um, because, you know, and I would call that a disability, right? Because mm-hmm. of the lasting impressions and Torn up psyche after things that she faced. Like there was so much going on, and some women were so violently frustrated, while other women were like, "We need to forgive. We need to love." And and still, there's the subtext always, Kells, because of of where this is set and what community we're talking about of religion, of mm-hmm. re- spirituality, religion, and the obligations to religion and society as they are. I couldn't also recognize any of these people as somebody in my world, let's say. I did not able to say, oh my goodness, that is so-and-so in this situation. I could not you Thankfully, find uh-huh. even find this kind of situation because it's, it seems in my head, what, they, they snuck in and drugged these women yeah. and did horrible things. This is what they so did. Normalized. Uh, it was normalized. Mm-hmm. But it was one of the books where due to where um, the, the culture, everything, I guess... Even though I'm not sure I want to use the word culture, I couldn't relate. They didn't represent anyone I knew. So their story for me was totally their story. Yeah. 
Yeah, you can convolute it with your own relatability. No, like it's too no. far from our own realities. And I wonder too. And it's as not. It wasn't to, because it was so violent. No. So this, uh, you know, as we were talking about yeah. the Ukraine war, it wasn't because you had to think of people seeing this or seeing that. You, obviously, the act itself, the the, yeah. the offense, you know, you understood. But even that, you understood, but didn't understand. Right. And the thing is, um, one of one thing we didn't talk about is the ending and their actual decision to leave the colony and mm-hmm. how they came to that. But um, also the the fact that we were set up so that, you know, at the start of the book, we were told, hey, this is where the women are. This is the part of the process they're at now. Now they're trying to decide what to do from here. The men have already been um, taken into custody, right? Yeah. And And this is no longer a fight of whether or not these acts actually happened. But imagining how long that took like just imagining how long it took for the women to be in the position where they could be speaking of this as fact, yes. right? Because there was so much of the the throwaway of oh, you know, they they told us it was just the devil's work. They told us it was God testing us. They told us that this stuff isn't real. We're just hallucinating when we wake up. You know, these kind of things and how long that took yeah. to get here. Yeah. Good day. Good book. Yeah, really, really good book. And we can talk about it forever. And so many others can talk about it forever as well, because it's so well received and uh, so much to get into. But we are out of time. So let's wrap and tell people what's coming up next month uh, on the book club. It was Kelly's turn to pick the book because I chose first. And you chose Emperor of the North. Sir George Simpson and the remarkable story of the Hudson's Bay Company. Oh, this is a on your list, eh? For mm-hmm. a while. Yeah, for quite a while. Yeah. Okay. It's by James Ruff, Raffan. I believe I'm saying that correctly. And it's a biography, historical biography, Canadian biography, Canadian nonfiction, et cetera, et cetera. Human narrated on the Center for Equitable Library Access, of course, available on Audible as well. So we're talking about the histories of Sir George Simpson and the Hudson's Bay Company in the 19th century. It's in many ways one in the same for Simpson's professional acumen and personal ambitions propelled a failing business to a position of great wealth and political power captures Simpson's many uh many what am I saying uh anyways many somethings a brilliant manager who kept <laughs> <laughs> kept a, a his fur Sports from east to west, ensuring British power across the land. A pompous dandy who is most at home in a Vio Voyager, Voyager canoe. Yeah. A man ashamed of his legitimate birth, but who went on to siren 13 children. A master businessman who laid the foundation for the single greatest business enterprise of its day. Lots and lot lots to it. talk about, which is why we get the 20-hour book for the next two months. We're actually discussing it at the end of January, Tuesday, January 30th. Join us in 2024 to discuss this book. We will remind you tons throughout the last or the next eight-ish weeks so that you can read along with us and send us your commentary. We'll be back to wrap up the show with you and tell you what's coming up on now with Dave Brown. Just a couple more minutes left until we are done with Kelly and Ramia for today. We'll be right back. We'll be back with more of Kelly and Ramya after this short break. Kelly even tricked the dog. How is that possible? I didn't think it was, but you barked. My dog got up and walked over thinking. He growled too at somebody. Did he? There was an invisible dog, I think. I know. Yeah. God, okay. Anyways. 
Let's uh, run to the end here. We are, of course, reminding you that our show is available in podcast platforms, on podcast platforms, uh, around the digital world. So just search for Kelly and Ramia, and you'll find us there in segments and in full show. Also, tomorrow morning, 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv, we got our morning show, Now with Dave Brown, and they've got a lineup to come to you from Kelly McDonald. Yeah, it's going to be very interesting, folks, because some of you possibly have thought, and they're going to talk about on tomorrow's show, you might have forgotten, AMI-audio is hosting special programming this weekend to celebrate International Day of Persons with Disabilities. Technical producer Jacob Shemansky will be there with all the details. Also something else to talk about, protests shut down the Saskatchewan legislature last week and prompted security changes. Journalist John Lucky will be here, and uh, he's going to be talking about the impact that these changes that are coming up will have on the legislature. And the holiday season can be a hard time for many people. And Kamozi will have tips on how you can cope with feelings of anxiety during this time, a real tough time. Yes, yes, and we've talked about it in different angles here on the show, but um, yeah, this time of year can be quite uh, rough. Although the festivities are coming up, we have a lot of other reasons to remember that it is also a tough time of year and the year's coming to an end and a new year's coming and so many people in so many circumstances have lots to think about. Now with Dave Brown, 9 a.m. Eastern Time on AMI-tv, also available on podcasts, so check them out however Mm -hmm. you want. Fun stuff every day. Okay, I found this website that gives you information and context around strange and mostly unofficial holidays. So remember around um, Halloween when I was like, strange and interesting ways that people celebrate Halloween around the world? Well, this is kind of an extension of that phase. So the first one I'm going to feature is National Punctuation Day. Heard of it? Nope. Okay, self-explanatory. It is on September 24th. Exclamation mark. Yeah, this is on September 24th. So every year for us uh, grammar and spelling nerds, write it down, okay? Set it up for you on the 24th. And that's the day you get a freebie to correct everybody around you for their bad writing. Yeah. And the big question is, do people care as much, right? Like Some people do, all right? You know who cares? The guy who created it. So newsletter specialist Jeff Rubin created Mm -hmm. National Punctuation Day in 2004 to promote and celebrate correctly placed semicolons, periods, and ellipses. Thanks, man. His wife, Norma, apparently got super super sick and tired of his complaints about seeing punctuation being misused. So she encouraged him to, quote, do something about it. All good wives do. And then the website for National Punctuation Day began. It features punctuation products, photo contests, educational resources, and even a recipe for the official meatloaf of National Punctuation Day. Keep that. I don't even know what that means. I don't know if it has any context to do with punctuations at all. Maybe, oh, the punctuation used in the recipe, right? Yep. Yeah, okay. And um, if you were wondering, you know, how stickler is this guy and what are his opinions on this, that, or the other grammar and spelling and punctuation related, he supports the Oxford comma. So you can start your debates there. Gosh. Wow, us older people remember Schoolhouse Rocks, guys. Go look that up now and find the the exclamation mark one. That one's great. Mm, Okay, some parody? 
or another. All right, here's what's coming up on tomorrow's show, Wednesday, midweek edition of Kelly and Rumia. Greg David is stopping by to highlight Christmas specials, movies, musical concerts coming our way and to our screens in the next little while. Awesome. Also, a special edition of Know Your Rights, folks, when Danielle McLaughlin continues her discussion of knowing what Canada can and can't do for its citizens when we travel abroad. That's it for us. Bye. Talk to you tomorrow. I'm Margaret Shepard of the AMI podcast, Tripping On Air. Every month, my co-host Alex Hadjar and I spill the tea on what it's really like to live with MS. Watch Tripping On Air on YouTube or download wherever you get your pods.